Life Baptist preaching, where we grow disciples, we grow relationships, and we grow in Jesus Christ. This series is entitled, On the Christian Life. Studying the book of 1 John, we are taught what should and should not be included in the Christian life. We hope that you join us here each Lord's Day, and you can subscribe so that you don't miss a single Sunday. We're reading his first uh, epistle or letter, um, and we'll be going through this book uh, for the next several weeks, and, uh, and it is a rich study. John writes this epistle to be circulated, it's to be an encouragement uh, to strengthen uh, the churches uh, throughout uh, Christendom, throughout the land, and it will do the same for us still today. In it, he explains uh, the Christian life, what thoughts, uh, behaviors, uh, words, and deeds that belong to the saint, and what of those do not uh, belong in the Christian life. Uh, so we've entitled this study on the Christian life, and we're just, it'll be a thoroughgoing study. And, uh, and so this morning, just right here in his introduction, he reveals his intention uh, to complete our joy. Uh, so, so he's inciting joy for us. That's what we're looking at today. And that will be the first four verses in 1 John chapter 1. If you had a chance to turn in your copy of God's Word, then you are welcome to stand as we honor uh, the reading of it. So 1 John chapter 1, beginning verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and shew it unto you, that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Father, we accept this testimony this morning. Lord, as we enter into your word, we trust the words that we have read, these words that, that you've written on our hearts. Lord, it is a faithful and true testimony. And God, even as we encounter uh, whatever stress, whatever sin is left, Lord, let us be sure that your word imparts a timeless 
and a timely joy. Lord, I pray that You would meet with us. That our hearts would be filled. Lord, despite uh, the circumstance and the trials that would always seek to steal our joy. Lord, let joy resound in us this morning. Restore in us the hope that we knew at first in the gospel, the love that we had at first for our Savior, that we would be encouraged and outfitted uh, to lead our families and Lord, to give an excuse for the joy that undoubtedly resides in everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. In Christ we pray. Amen. It's interesting that John himself assigns assigns the topic of Christian joy here right out of the gate. This is the way he wants to pattern his letter. Uh, for all those who are going to read it, and, and you notice it's not, it's not addressed to a specific church or to a specific congregation. So often when we read the letters of Paul, he's addressing very specific concerns and specific sins that are going on in the life of a particular church. This... This is something general. This is something that should uh, be present and must be read in the life of every Christian everywhere. His letter is designed to be circulated, to be copied and distributed. And, um, and yet it's interesting that he assigns this topic, this character trait of joy, right out of the gate, knowing that he's going to address areas of sin. He's going to, in this letter, confront false teaching and teachers. He's going to deliver some pretty strong exhortation at times. And yet he writes, so that your joy may be full. So this indicates that he's not merely talking about an ecstatic emotion or, or happiness. No, what John's speaking about is much more. And if we get anything from this message, I hope it is this. The Christian experiences joy in the certainty of their faith. And as they experience fellowship with God through Christ in His church. And I want to say that again because that wraps up what we're going to be talking about this morning. The Christian experiences joy in the certainty of their faith and as they experience fellowship with God through Christ in His church. John begins this way with the surety or certainty 
of the Christian faith. It consists of knowing and believing. Knowing and believing. There's a troubling practice among some Christians or those who call themselves Christians that might say that they believe in the Scriptures, they choose to believe the Scriptures, though they do not know them to be true. This is not a suitable practice or definition of faith. I've heard this to give an example where the Bible, in its whether it's authority or its accountability, has doubt cast upon it. I, I've literally heard uh, from one man that I've learned too much to know that all the Bible is true, but I choose to believe it anyway. Uh, that is not faith. That is not what John is trying to strengthen in us. It is not what grants us joy. That is believing but not knowing. Conversely, some might equate faith with an intellectual knowledge or an assent that may or may not entail their belief. Uh, this claim comes through some of those who suppose that they have been persuaded of the Scriptures by their historical validity alone. One example of this is actually a pretty good read that I would suggest it to anyone here. But one man by the name of Anthony Flew writes a book, There Is a God. I don't know if you've heard of this. The man was a prominent, he was raised in a Christian home, a Methodist home, and yet he did not share the faith of his parents or he departed from it, and he became one of the most prominent atheist philosophers uh, of the prior generation. And by reason alone, in his own argument against the existence of God, he was convinced there must be an existence of God. And so he was converted to believe that there is a God. And yet he is a man who does not deny that he has had no personal or spiritual encounter with the risen Christ or the spirit that reveals these things and convicts our sinful hearts of these things. Others have taken passages like Hebrews 11.1, 1, which says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen, they take it to mean that faith has no bearing in what can be assuredly known. But that's not the case of that passage either. 
That passage does not mean to separate faith uh, from knowledge. Believing and knowing, uh, though we can speak of them separately, our faith can certainly be both of those. John tells us in so many words, even repeatedly in fact, that he has seen this words of life. He's seen it. His testimony is true. They're eyewitnesses. Look again to our text and, and see how repetitive, how redundant John begins his letter. This was from the beginning which we've heard, which we've seen with the eyes, we've looked upon, our hands have handled. It was manifested. It's a way to say it was made obvious, it was made known. It's, it was manifested to us, and we've seen it and bear witness and show it to you, this work of the Father, which was, again, manifested to us. He's, he's piling up words here, and he continues, that which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you. Over and over again. Indeed, they have seen it. He stresses that they have heard and seen and looked upon. Their hands have touched. We've seen, we bear witness. And again, we have seen and heard. And so this is not a faith that is separated from a knowledge or a trueness of a thing. This is why the Dutch uh, theologian, Giardas Voss, defines faith as an acceptance as true by which we do not rest in ourselves, but in the testimony of another. The trueness of a thing is not dependent on your knowledge of it or your seeing it. We could use any number of examples, but because one has been recent in the news, I think it's safe to say that everyone in this room can be sure that there is a city called Kiev that exists within Ukraine. Is that a safe estimation? Everyone here knows for certain there is a city called Kiev. And yet I would venture to say none of us have been there. None of us have, have walked its boundaries, have met or spoken with its people. And whether, and even if there is someone here who does not know that, maybe you've just learned this information and you, by God's grace, have not had your TV on for the past several weeks, it still does not diminish the fact that there is a city called Kiev inside the Ukraine. So the trueness of a thing is not dependent on your knowledge of it. 
It's for very good reason that Christ has ascended and later sent His Spirit, leaving Himself currently unseen, but His Gospel well attested in the Scriptures that you have before you. God's will is perfect. It is righteous and just. And it is for a very good reason that He calls us by way of faith. When we come to the Lord in faith, just like whenever we trust, we know for certain with a great deal of certainty that the city of Kiev exists, it does not mean because we have not beheld it that it is something that cannot be beheld. Christ can be beheld. He is one who is living, can be seen, heard, and touched. That's the testimony that we have in John this morning. They have seen, heard, and touched the one from whom these words of life come. And so he builds up this faith. Our faith is based on what is assuredly true. If we revisit those passages that we referenced earlier, even in Hebrews, this passage that we hear often quoted being a, a faith uh, is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things unseen. Well, you can't see it, but, but you can still have faith in it. But don't miss that it is an assurance of things hoped for. It is something that is sure. Something that is certain. There's no doubt cast in this Christ in whom we have or place our faith. Our faith is based on something very true. There's no need to leave God or His Word on trial. The endless theorizing of modern thinkers or philosophers is without truth. We have a testimony that has been preserved for us in His Holy Word that bears witness. We have this Scripture. We have this truth. This is the truth that the world is in need of. This testimony. So then be confident. Take it to the bank. This conduit of faith through which we receive this gospel in no way indicates that this message is incomplete, arbitrary, or in some way cannot be known if we listen to our agnostic friends. These authors have certainly seen and heard their testimony stands with us still. And so he wants to build up our faith. He wants to make certain that we know it's true. They've seen and they've heard it. They're eyewitnesses. There is no doubt. 
And there's no testimony greater than the eyewitness. It is actually even a criteria for the apostolic message. But there's evidence. We have evidence of this truthfulness. And there's a subsequent effect. And that is our resulting fellowship. He tells us all these things and makes certain that we've, we've heard this. We've looked upon it. We have seen and touched of this word of life. It is the life that's manifested. It's with the Father and it was manifest to us. We declare it unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. That's a, that's a jam-packed statement. This fellowship this, if you're following your notes, you might see what looks like a little bit of scribble. That's the word being used there in this fellowship is this koinonia. <clears throat> so that you may have koinonia with us. And our koinonia is assuredly with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's fellowship. That word ought to be important to us, and it's important to John whenever he tells us, you've got fellowship with us. Now here at New Life, we, we love the fellowship that we have with one another. Uh, we're excited to visit with one another. We often start our, our gathering late due to the conversations that we have. We love the fellowship. That's the koinonia is what we engage in once a month whenever we gather at the fellowship, whenever we recognize the importance of the oneness and the community that we have with one another. Because it's not our, our, our faith and our existence and our unity, the community that we have here in the body of Christ exists more than just on account of some intellectualism. It brings us to fellowship. So John assures us of our unity even to the apostles as we're partakers of the same gospel. He gives this testimony. He writes a letter to be put into circulation so that every Christian might hear it. And by God's grace, he's preserved this word so that we too might hear it and read that we might have fellowship with him. Now that's wonderful. This bears witness to that same assurance of the faith that we talked about just a minute ago. They who have seen, touched, heard, and handled this gospel, who have interacted so closely with the one who bore the words of life, the one who is the light of men, we're going to have fellowship with them who have seen, touched, and heard. This is the real Savior that we're, we're coming into community with. There's a very real presence that we that we come into, that we long for, that we experience in, in the Lord's Supper and in our time of prayer and in our time of worship and in our study of His Word. He begins with the fellowship of the saints. The occasion for our gathering today, the occasion for our eternal unity, it comes in the faith that we share. 
Listen, our day is, is full of examples of, of people calling us uh, to greater unity. Battles to maintain old relationships and, so, and associations or form new ones. And yet, friends, if, if we are not united in the common faith, we are not united at all. There is nothing else that grants us this fellowship, this unity, but Christ. There is nothing in this world that can provide you with the community, the love, the support, the family, and even accountability and discipline like the church. In Christ, we're bound fast together. The word says, no man can separate us. We don't simply glean intellectual knowledge from these biblical authors, but we receive the grace that they themselves received. We're allotted a share in the inheritance that they themselves have been promised. There's a unity. When John writes the letter and we read it as intended, we have a share in what he has a share in. That should give us joy. He assures us of this, and yet it's more grand because the fellowship is not merely of man, but it is a fellowship restored to God. He says that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. John makes clear the fellowship that he shared with us and included us in is the fellowship that God has brought them, himself, into. God's reconciled us to himself. We're granted a share in the fellowship of, of the Godhead. In John's gospel, he writes that, that we're born not of flesh, nor the will of man, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Our fellowship is with God. And when our fellowship is with God the Father and of the Son, we receive something wonderful because we are granted a fellowship that the Father has with the Son and the Son with the Father, a very special fellowship that only God can have with himself. He invites us in to this divine unity that he has. Whenever Jesus prayed that he would return to the glory he had at first, the word tells us that he would eventually include us in that glory. That he's going to impart to us a, a glory that he's received from the Father, that we'll be one, that we'll abide in him as he does in the Father. Colossians tells us we're hidden with Christ in God. So this fellowship is huge. This fellowship is something that certainly imparts joy and it grows our faith and our knowledge of Him. It grows our joy. 
It provides a wonderful basis for all that John is going to write to us, the encouragements that he'll provide to us later in this chapter. This fellowship provides the frightening reality that will cause us to tremble and repent when he deals with sin. This fellowship is the focal point of much of our meditation as Christians, and it's the starting point of John's epistle. It's why the chief characteristic of, of his introduction is joy. Not a joy that consists of fleeting emotions, but a joy that is established in the certainty of our faith in such a glorious gospel truth that redeems us and will surely redeem many more. A joy that brings happiness and sober seriousness. A joy that's lasting and inevitable for the Christian. So he goes on to say all of this. We've seen, we've heard this, it's certain. In this you're granted fellowship with us, but not just with us, but the Father and the Son with whom we have been united. All of this is for the purpose that your joy may be full. Now this concept has proven quite pertinent for me, especially this week. Even as I studied about this joy that seems inherent, supposedly, in the Christian life, I was confronted with quite the opposite. Dealing with exhaustion and conflict, I was confronted even this week with, with my own anger and harsh tone. John's words challenged me. Even as he, he later chisels away at, at what sin remains in the Christian, but he's sure that joy resides in the heart of the Christian. How then do we settle that issue of anger or impatience or whatever sin when it arises? When that root of sin that remains in your heart, whenever it's laid bare, how then do we deal with that in light of what John has just written? You repent. You repent. Christian, you are to have an everlasting joy. Not a mere emotion. But you are to rest in these eternal truths that accomplish your salvation. We read this morning of profound statements in Scripture of the grace of God displayed in Christ before the foundation of the world. That is a sure hope. That should give you joy that does not rest in your works, even in your existence. We have such the hope that it was appointed and laid, it was stored up for us. So 
So when you're confronted, as I was this week, with the root of your sin, you repent of it. You repent before your wife or children or whoever you exacted your anger or impatience or, or, or anxiety or whatever your, this sin is. We know that we have sin. No one's without the sin or they would be a liar. And yet we never allow this to steal the joy that John is speaking of. This is why he begins with such the assurance from the beginning. Because friends, if you were only left to listen to me, you would not have such a hope and such a joy and such an assurance. But no, this morning we have the full testimony of Scripture. These writers carried along by the Spirit who write this and give you full testimony in what they have seen, touched, and heard. You've got the full witness of all of God's Word solidifying the promises of God through the Son, Jesus Christ, and it draws you into fellowship as you are reconciled by faith. Friends, that gives you joy. This is what it looks like to have this fellowship with Christ and with the saints. We have a joy that overwhelms our grief. We have a joy despite our sin. In this fellowship with Christ and having His own Spirit and having these brothers and sisters around you to, to call out this sin, to lay it bare, for you to confess these sins in that same way, to heap up this grace upon grace, that Christ would have His full effect, that your sin would be repented of, my sin be repented of, that our joy would not be stolen. This is what it looks like to have the joy that John speaks of. This does not mean that you will or must be bubbly all the time. It does, however, mean that you are no longer a slave to sin. That you may now experience joy that comes from the certainty of salvation in Christ Jesus. The joy that's not a result of good emotions, but a joy that is itself the basis of a life of repentance from anger or whatever sin that resides. This joy is a joy that enables your war against everything unholy in us and everything unholy in the world. It's a joy knowing that God in Christ has accomplished the victory that we could not. It is a joy that forgives and brings repentance. It's a joy that unites us one to another into Christ himself. John writes in his gospel in chapter 15, verse 11, 
These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So if we wrestle over whether or not verse 4 reads that your joy or that our joy be full, it's a both end scenario. This is a joy that fills the Christian walk. And so I hope this morning that we're challenged by that. That we're challenged and that we take inventory. That we take inventory of our emotions. That we're not ruled by sin or our emotions. But that our emotions are ruled or characterized by the joy that we hold within us. And if they're not... Repent of that. Repent of that. Let joy resound in the heart of the Christian. Just as it's true that if any man say he has no sin, he's a liar. If any Christian says he has no joy, he too is a liar. And yet because of the great grace of our God and Jesus Christ, both of those can be true. That He loved us while we were yet enemies. While we were sinners, He sent His Son to die in our stead. What a great joy that we all can have. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the grace that You show us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, it's unthinkable for us to think how we ourselves can be in fellowship with such a holy God. And yet, Father, we pray. We pray that our hearts would be confronted with this very fact. Lord, that already we would be instigated to repent of what sin remains. Lord, that we would not hold off sins or deal with them later or that we would hold these scriptures at arm distance or we would think that this week is not our week to have this expressed joy overflowing in our life. Lord, let, let us be proved wrong. Let your word bear witness upon our life. Let your spirit work the work of conviction that it would work the work of sanctification. Lord, that you would cast off all that has been stealing our joy. That you would cast off the worries that we have concerning the world. That you would cast off the frustrations that we have in our parenting. That you would cast off the anxieties surrounding our health, surrounding our finances, surrounding our relationships. Father, that you would cast off the sin of the old man that, that still clings so tightly. Father, that we would repent. Father, that we would be showered in Christ. Father, that this would characterize, that this risen Savior would characterize our actions, our emotions. And instill with us a joy that cannot be stolen. A treasure that moth and rust cannot destroy. 
Lord, restore us and reconcile us to yourself. Reconcile us to one another. For is there, there is no fellowship with you that does not involve the fellowship with every other believer who's enduring these same trials. So, Father, we're thankful for you. And we recall our recent study in Deuteronomy, knowing that you are our praise. Father, you are our praise this morning. You are our joy. Let these words go with us this week. Father, that our joy would be full as John has intended in this holy writing. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Life Baptist Preaching, where we grow disciples, we grow relationships, grow in Jesus Christ. Please subscribe so you don't miss a single Sunday.